The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello, and welcome to Pseudo Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, culture, and law. I'm Abraham Litwin Logan, and today we'll be discussing the Supreme Court in the United States. I'm joined today by Harish. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing good, Abe. Thanks for asking. And Malik, how's it going? Not bad. Uh, I'm also doing well. Uh, thank you for asking, Abe. So perhaps if we could start our conversation with just a, a general bird's eye view of how the Supreme Court in the United States currently works, perhaps the historical roots, and what role does it play as an institution more generally? Malik, could you just give us a quick overview? I can indeed. I guess it would be uh, nice to start by talking a little bit about the selection procedure uh, for uh, a person to become a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. So uh, candidates are nominated by the president and uh, they then face multiple hearings in which both uh, the nominee and other witnesses make statements and answer uh, questions before the Judicial Committee of the Senate. So it's important to highlight that first uh, one goes to the Judicial Committee, Committee of the Senate before going to the Senate itself. If the Judicial Committee uh, deems the person uh, an eligible candidate, they will then uh, pass uh, the nomination to the Senate as a whole, who will then vote whether to confirm or not uh, that person as a justice of the Supreme Court. After that, uh, the president can officially uh, appoint that person as a justice. It's important to note that there are no requirements for a person to become a justice of the Supreme Court. In other words, anyone can become one. You do not need to have any legal experience uh, however, in the past, it has been the case that all justices of the Supreme Court have had some legal instruction, uh, be it that uh, in uh, the early stages of the Supreme Court, uh, they didn't have uh, formal instruction, but more uh, mentors, just because it was really uh, uncommon to have law schools at that time. Uh, there are many criticisms uh, that can be made to the uh, United States Supreme Court, but I, I feel that that's something to, that we can move on a, a bit later. But that, that is a general overview of the court. Sure. And then I suppose institutionally, uh, Harish, what sort of power does the Supreme Court in the U.S. has in terms of how it compares to the you know, executive and legislative bodies? Um, so I, I guess to put into context, you must recognize that being a um, republic, the constitution in the U.S. is the highest law of the land. And because um, the Supreme Court has powers of interpretation over the constitution, um, it it, it, it has a broad um, jurisdiction over the kinds of issues it can deliberate over. And that often means that it can strike down legislation or executive orders by either the executive or the legislature respectively. So it actually has a has quite a fair ambit of um, power. However, it is only constrained by, um, I guess, judicial interpretation and um, the restraint of judges to delve into political spheres. Great. So I think that's a great starting point for our conversation today. And as our listeners will likely know, uh, the Supreme Court has, you know, come under um, new scrutiny, I suppose, with the uh, recent death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, leading to a vacancy in the Supreme Court, meaning that the current administration likely, well, they, they've already said that they're going ahead with the appointment of a new Supreme Court justice, which if successful would, would be the third Supreme Court justice um, appointed under the Trump administration. And as you said, Malik, these are 
lifetime uh, appointments. So just how important would this be over the next few decades if, you know, the Republican administration is able to go ahead with this change? Well, uh, I'd like to build upon your point and touch on two separate matters. Uh, the first one is the selection process. So as uh, you've rightly mentioned, it, it is a very partisan uh, and political process. And that makes it very likely that uh, the person uh, that is appointed by the president that uh, has a mandate at the time will be a person that has ideological leanings towards uh, that president's party or that president uh, themselves. But touching upon the point that you made about li uh, lifetime um, while tenure, uh, it is actually a very uh, high criticism that people make at the Supreme Court uh, because judges are appointed Supreme Court when they're relatively young, or at least that has been the trend uh, lately and most recently. Uh, take, for example, Amy Barrett, which is uh, President Trump's uh, pick to replace uh, Judge Ginsburg. Uh, she's only 48 years old at the present time. And uh, the life expectancy woman in the United States is 81 years, which would give her uh, roughly uh, 33 years as a Supreme Court justice. That is, uh, if she does not live longer than those 81 expected years. And uh, it, it is a view that uh, by the end of those years, it is very likely that uh, Barrett will have views that are not uh, contemporary with the times. Uh, so in 30 years, who knows how society will think and react. Uh, but certainly, uh, and it's very likely, that Amy Barrett will not reflect those views. Uh, so that is a criticism that, criticism that is leveled against the Supreme Court and which I find meriting, uh, to be completely honest. So with this, this point you're highlighting on lifetime tenor of these justices, is this something that just occurs in the, the system within the US or are there examples of this across the world, either Harish or Malik, if you wanna jump in? Well, I, I guess I'll take this one then. Uh, well, no, uh, no other major democracy follows the United States practice of giving its Supreme Court uh, lifetime tenures. And I, I do understand that this was desire, uh, well, the desire of the founding fathers of the United States. Uh, however, I firmly believe that merely because some people agreed that it was the best choice uh, two centuries and a half ago uh, to structure the Supreme Court in that manner, uh, that should not mean that uh, today's uh, citizens of the United States should still be held uh, bound by that decision, because of course, in those two, century, two centuries and a half, a lot has occurred. And so one could argue that uh, experience has showed that it is not the best practice to have these justices uh, serving lifetime uh, tenures. Um, just to also give some clarity to what constitutes a lifetime appointment. Lots of other countries also have lifetime appointments in principle. But in practice, they retire at about 70 or 75 years old. Just as, a, as an example, the UK Supreme Court has a lifetime appointment as well, but the retirement age is 75. So even though, um, in, at least textually, it appears that people have, um, I mean, or judges have um, lifetime appointments, in practice, there is no such significant constraint, or if you put it another way, there's, there's, there's no unlimited tenure, a theoretically unlimited tenure, basically, for the Supreme Court. Sure. So I think that's uh, a, a great place for our, our conversation to go. But surely there are some sort of benefits to uh, having justices on the Supreme Court for their entire lives. You know, for example, uh, one would presume that they're not incentivized to, you know, uh, um, judge in a manner which is very radical or cause sweeping change because they know that they don't have to worry about making an impact while they have a few years left on the court. 
rather they have the rest of their life on the court. Is this not, you know, at least one of the advantages of having lifetime tenure? For sure, Abraham. Uh, I've read about this defense of lifetime tenure, and I, I agree that it seems uh, at first glance a very strong argument, a very strong point. But during my research, I also found something uh, that I found uh, very uh, interesting, and it actually shocked me. And that is that the United States uh, Supreme Court are not barred, uh, well, the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court justices are not barred from receiving gifts or outside income. And uh, because uh, the Supreme Court has no ethics code, uh, they do indeed have obligations uh, such as uh, financial disclosure. And in practice, uh, the 1991 uh, Supreme Court justices did uh, agree to abide by the substance of the uh, regulations that, uh, well, hold other justices uh, in the United States uh, to account. But legally, uh, they do not have any, uh, well, constraints upon uh, their, uh, well, their ability to receive gifts and out outside income. In fact, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, he was uh, notoriously uh, able to take dozens of trips funded by uh, private donors. In fact, from uh, 2004 to 2014, he took uh, 258 subsidized trips, uh, 23 in 2014 alone. And that makes one uh, think about the impartiality of judges in the Supreme Court uh, when they're free to receive incentives, uh, well, incentives from third parties. And I, I don't mean to say that merely because a person takes a subsidized trip that uh, throws into question uh, their ability to judge a case, but uh, it, it does seem that the system should be amended so that uh, those um, incentives and gifts are not uh, possible so that uh, perhaps one has more trust in the system as a whole. So uh, perhaps this undermines uh, the uh, argument that lifetime tenure uh, leads to more impartiality uh, injustices. Sure. So um, I suppose moving on, away from lifetime uh, tenor for now. Um, in terms of the number of justices on the Supreme Court, is it pretty much the same across uh, the globe amongst other Supreme Courts, where in the US there's nine current justices? Abe, are you specifically referring to the number or just sort yeah. of? Well, I suppose the number, because then we can move the conversation towards, yep. you know. Um, so I, I guess there's some peculiarities about the the U.S. system as opposed to other Supreme Court systems um, within the Anglo-American sphere. Um, most Supreme Courts have an odd number, just because it makes sense for an odd number to exist so that a decision can be made and the decision does not split evenly. Um, there's also... Um, a general convention that not all justices sit on on Supreme Court cases in other jurisdictions. For example, in the UK, it's up to the courts um, to decide as to whether or not um, to have three or five or up all the way up to 11 justices to sit on the court. So it is a peculiarity in the US's case that all Supreme Court justices sit on every single case. Great. So um, I guess with that, we can move the conversation towards the recent um, you know, rhetoric and proposals we've heard Democratic operatives um, in the US along with Democrat uh, policymakers 
discussing various options to either oppose um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett's appointment to the Supreme Court, or if her appointment is successful, how the uh, Democratic Party would be able to um, respond to, I suppose, the, alleviate the concerns um, created by having a six to three uh, majority in the Supreme Court. And one of these proposals we've heard is the idea of packing the court. So if uh, the Biden administration is uh, successful in the upcoming election and uh, the Democrats are successful in winning the Senate, um, some Democrats argue that the right thing for them to do would be to add a certain amount of justices to the Supreme Court, swinging the 6-3 majority to something more manageable or something more in their favor. So on, on the face of things, does this sound like, uh, first of all, a realistic proposal? And then we can get into the, the merits of it uh, later on. Malik, what do you think? As for being a realistic proposal, I do feel that it is realistic in the sense that uh, the United States Constitution uh, does not impose any uh, limits on the number of justices that must sit on the Supreme Court. So an administration uh, via an act of Congress is, fuel, is free to add any number of uh, justices to the Supreme Court as it deems necessary. In fact, uh, this has been done before. As for whether it be something positive, I believe that uh, the United States is currently in a very polarized uh, moment in its history. And because of that, if the Democrats uh, win uh, the uh, December election and consequently uh, add to the number of justices in the Supreme Court, I feel that if the Republicans were to regain uh, power in the future, they would uh, perhaps follow a similar uh, measure. And uh, that would uh, lead to a continuous uh, measures to well, try to get the upper hand in regards to Supreme Court because it does play a very important role in American society, deciding not only in regards to the rights and liberties of individuals, but also, in fact, elections, as Al Gore and Bush demonstrated earlier on in the century. So I do not feel it'd be a positive measure. However, I do understand why the Democrats would want to do it. Uh, but I, I, I do believe it would be detrimental to the American uh, democracy. Interestingly enough, we actually do have a historical example of um, where the idea of court packing was proposed. And this was in 1937, if I remember correctly, with uh, the Roosevelt administration, where um, I believe one of his main policy um, you know, proposals while is uh, being implemented, the Supreme Court uh, intervened and uh, prevented its implementation. Administration to bring forth um, a piece of legislation which would, in essence, allow their administration to add more justices based on the amount of current justices that were over the age of uh, 70 years old. But this proposal eventually failed uh as a result of variety of reasons but we never actually saw um court packing in action but it's interesting that this is not the first time such an idea has been proposed but harish what do you think if let's say um biden does win in november and the democrats do take the senate and they do go ahead and propose some measures that would lead to the 6-3 majority turning into you know, a Democrat majority. What does this say about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in the U.S.? I think um, 
it, it poses a problem for the legitimacy, certainly if we were to, um, I guess, reverse the policies of um, a previous administration simply by creating a democratic or ideological majority. But um, I think because of that, the, the, the pragmatist in me thinks that it's unlikely that a democratic House and Senate alongside a Joe Biden victory would necessarily lean in that way. Rather, I think a more conservative approach would be to increase the number of justices by two to reach 11, such that there is a slight conservative majority um, with uh, John Ro Chief Justice John Roberts ex acting as sort of a, a um, bipartisan justice of sorts, even though many might regard him as otherwise. Um, I think it is I think broadly, it's difficult to accept change, but such uh, change is not unprecedented. Um, I'd use the example um, in the UK um, to show how um, change can sometimes need, lead to greater stability. So um, if I could get some of you to think about um, the 19, the Parliament Act 1911. So um, just to give our, our viewers some historical context, in essence, the House of Lords in the past, which is one of the two chambers in Parliament in the UK, had a de facto veto power, which meant that it could strike down legislation. And in 1910, um, the House of Lords was was filled with conservative um, Lords members, which uh, juxtaposed against a um, Labour majority in the House of Commons. And so the House of Lords would strike down legislation constantly. Um, and as a result of this, um, the monarch at the time, the king at the time, I can't remember off the top of my head which king it was, but um, the king decided that he would threaten um, the lords with by, incre by possibly increasing the number of seats in the lords such that they would receive a labour majority. And as a response to this, the lords, um, I guess, uh, decided to give up some of its own power so it no longer retains a veto power and instead has only a delaying power of two years which has now been shortened to I think a year. So um, such constitutional crises if you could call them that which I think certainly this would fall under is not unprecedented in the Anglo-American sphere and certainly it has led to a new normal, a different system, one that's dominated now by the commons and by the executive in the commons but certainly something that isn't um, problematic, or at, at the very least, it, it's it's not something that would be um, so vastly different from, uh, or so vastly problematic that we wouldn't want to accept it. So I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that merely increasing the number of justices to 11 would certainly be a significant constitutional shift, but I don't think it would be problematic per se. Malik, do you buy this line of argument? First, do you think the example of Harris Sites is comparable to the current situation? And then second, do you buy that adding two um, Supreme Court justices wouldn't really harm the legitimacy of the Supreme Court? Is this the right way Uh, just for a few. Uh, yeah, for so answering your question. Uh, a new recording setup, so 
please bear with us if there's any confusion. So in order to answer your question, uh, I do feel that increasing the number of justices by two would not necessarily uh, hinder the legitimacy of uh, the Supreme Court, merely because this has been done before. But my issue with uh, stacking the Supreme Court is for the uh, possibility that in the future, uh, the Republicans will do that again, and then the Democrats once again, once they regain power. And so it creates a vicious cycle of uh, undermining uh, the Supreme Court. I, I feel that if that was done, then uh, American democracy would be uh, suffering a tremendous blow to its legitimacy. However, uh, were uh, the Democrats to increase by two uh, the number of Supreme Court justices and later on uh, no additional number uh, be added to that tally, uh, then I, I, I do not feel that that is necessarily problematic merely because this has been done before. And as uh, Harris pointed out, in the United Kingdom, uh, there are 11 uh, uh, judges and in Brazil as well, uh, the number is 11. And, and I feel that uh, there are other Supreme Courts across the world with uh, numbers superior uh, to nine. Uh, Harris, how do you respond to the critique or the concern that Malik just raised? What would stop the Republican administration, you know, five, 10 years from now, just adding two or four or six justices and then the Democrat administration after that, just adding another, you know? I suppose um, that there certainly is a risk that um, it would lead to a vicious cycle. Um, but I, I think certainly that the, the, the mere risk of there being a vicious cycle can also be cited for any other alternative policies that uh, the Republican Party is pursuing now. I don't mean that as a critique against the party itself, but just the the precedent, for example, that's being set now that um, uh, that there's a sort of reversal in policy from the 2016 um, appointment and then rejection by the um, by the Senate of Merrick Garland um, is certainly it, it certainly um, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it's certainly possible. Um, but we ought to recognize in context whether the likelihood of it is real. And that's why I think it would be dangerous if they were to expand the court such that um, a democratic majority arises. Because then, in fact, I think there's far, far too much of an impetus for the court to once again be expanded by a Republican government, the, which is why I think that the risk of having um, 11 justices with still a, a conservative majority is a lot uh, more plausible and stable as a as a as a number, as opposed to the current um, nine justice system. Because I think the incentives for creating eleven justices are just too high if the Democrats do gain a majority. Otherwise, it might be very difficult to pass through legislation that the Democrats might see seek to. But why would we need to really add any justices now? Is it just because the Republicans are, you know? Uh, have a three justice advantage? Is it because of sort of the hypocrisy with the, the Garland hearings? Is there something I'm missing? Because it seems to me that this would just be sort of to level the playing field when um, leveling the playing field in itself isn't something, you know, justifiable in my view. What do you think, Alec? Uh, for me, the issue is the hypocrisy. Uh, so uh, as we can uh, remember in 2016, 
uh, President Obama did indicate uh, a pick uh, to uh, replace uh, a, an outgoing uh, Supreme Court justice. However, uh, the Republicans, uh, in my opinion, rightly argued that the decision should remain uh, in the hands of the uh, president that would be elected in 2016. And in my opinion, uh, that logic still stands. I do not see why uh, uh, Trump should be appointing uh, a Supreme Court just in the eve of an election, seeing as uh, the new president would have a better democratic mandate to choose uh, who should be uh, taking uh, the place of Judge uh, Ginsburg. Uh, I'm aware of the argument going on that uh, there's likely to be considerable litigation in regards to the election, and uh, therefore having a uh, a supreme, a complete Supreme Court would allow for these cases to be decided in a more complete and in a better manner. Now, I only anticipate uh, copious amounts of election litigation or uh, important election litigation in case of uh, bad faith uh, by either of the two parties. Uh, so therefore, I do not believe that it should be used as a justification uh, to elect uh, a justice before uh, the election. That is uh, how I personally feel about the matter. Yeah, um, I, I guess my feelings aren't particularly intertwined towards the hypocrisy per se. I, I think it's just natural that um, that having conservative justices when you are a supposedly liberal party would mean that you would want justices um, to advantage. And in the past, a 5-4 split wasn't um, too onerous or too difficult a situation to manage. But with the 6-3 majority, it seems almost impossible for um, cases to go the way that um, democratic voters and um, democratic legislators would see, would want. So I, I think the impetus is just so that um, Democrats are likely to pursue this if um, decisions early on in the Supreme Court's tenure do not go that way. Sure. So why don't we move towards discussing uh, the lady who is um being appointed to the supreme court or attempting to be appointed to the supreme court right now amy coney barrett um Malik, could you perhaps give us a bit of an overview on her uh you know previous experience and where she stands on important issues mm -hmm. for sure uh, so Amy Barrett uh, is a U.S. Court of Appeals federal judge uh, since 2017. Uh, before that, uh, she was a professor of law at Notre Dame. Uh, I apologize for uh, butchering the name of uh, this noble institution. Um, my sincere apologies. <laughs> uh, she also uh, graduated top of her class at that same university. I won't attempt to uh, pronounce it uh, once again. And uh, she was editor of uh, the law journal of that university uh, during her uh, time there. Uh, she say that she is qualified in regard to her uh, knowledge of uh, the law. Uh, it is also my belief uh, that she was a clerk for uh, Judge uh, Scalia uh, early in her uh, career. So uh, that once again uh, qualifies her uh, legally uh, for the role. As uh, to her ideology, uh, well, she has uh, very strong uh, religious views. Uh, she uh, believes uh, in uh, the right to life uh, very strongly. Uh, she has uh, pronounced in the past uh, that uh, Roe and Wade uh, should be a decision uh, that is not constitutionally uh, sacred. In, in other words, she would not be opposed to reviewing that decision. And for those of you who do not know, 
uh, that was a decision uh, that concerned women's uh, reproductive rights uh, in regard to the whole of the United States. So uh, it does not leave it open for uh, states to decide uh, on uh, those rights, but uh, gives uh, the right uh, of choice to every woman uh, in the country. So uh, I, I guess that's a pretty uh, good overview of uh, Amy Barrett, uh, both legally and ideologically. Harris, is there anything you want to add to Alex's description? Um, I suppose I would only add um, that, um, unlike her predecessor, who, I mean, looking at her here, looking at his hearings, was very, I guess, um, did not demonstrate the poise that one would expect from a Supreme Court justice. Amy Coney Barrett has actually demonstrated quite a fair bit of poise. Um, she has also been um, reserved in her comments about public issues. Um, although, for example, she has written some essays on Roe and Wade and on the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Um, broadly, she has remained fairly conservative in the way she's expressed her opinions in the public sphere. And I guess um, it should lend credence to her ability to rule in a manner that um, that she believes is uh, concomitant with the Constitution. Well, I if think I'm, one thing... Uh, Go no, ahead, go on. Okay. No, please. Well, I, I think one thing um, which perhaps may be even more important than her views on uh, the Second Amendment or Roman Wade, if she is successfully appointed, is her um, well, is the degree of credence which she gives to precedence. So, from my understanding, uh, when compared to some of the other justices on the Supreme Court, uh, herself and Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, I believe, uh, have written in a way which reflects um, a willingness to overturn uh, precedents because uh, they believe that the precedents were, you know, wrongly decided based on the merits of the cases, um, rather than the more traditional view of only overturning precedents um, in, I suppose, extreme cases. Um, so if she is appointed to the Supreme Court successfully, do either of you foresee a significant shift in the sense that perhaps the Supreme Court will be a lot more willing to overturn longstanding decisions as a result of her appointment? What do you think, Malik? Well, to add on to what you said, uh, we also have to consider that uh, she's an adherent of uh, legal textualism. So that means that she believes in uh, reading and upholding uh, the law as it was written at the time. So, uh, for example, uh, the U.S. Constitution, as I mentioned, uh, is now uh, roughly uh, two and a half centuries old. However, Amy Barrett would have it read as it was written by uh, the founding fathers of the United States, which might mean uh, that she will uphold a, a vision of the law that is not in line with uh, societal standards. Uh, Abraham rightly mentioned that uh, she is also, uh, well, she holds precedent in a, in a high regard, but she has said in the past that uh, there are certain constitutional cases that should not be touched, but uh, that, uh, for example, Rowan Wade is in one of them. So perhaps that indicates a willingness to overturn uh, that decision uh, but of course, I'm not uh, a soothsayer or anything of that matter, so I, I, I cannot uh, predict how she will act uh, in the future.
future and how the Supreme Court as a whole will act. Because, of course, we have to remember she is not uh, the only person sitting in that court. There are other justices and uh, those other justices may influence her as she is, of course, uh, or she will be uh, the uh, most, uh, well, the, the least experienced member of that uh, tribunal. One thing, however, to note in, a, in opposition to what Malik says is that during her initial hearings, um, she has maintained um, a commitment to upholding precedent. So as much as she has pointed out that there's some precedent um, that cannot be touched um, and there are others that might be open to being touched, um, she has generally maintained the position that she is bound by precedent in the same manner that all Supreme Court justices are bound. That, that's a great point, Harish. So I, I guess if we're uh, going to zoom out a little bit, based on what you've um, read about uh, Justice Barrett um, and about the, the situation more generally, two questions. First, do you believe that she's a suitable candidate for the Supreme Court based on you know her legal experience, as well as, I suppose, um, her legal views on matters such as precedent, and and then second, um, what well, what do you think it says about her as a, a future, a potentially a future Supreme Court justice if she is successfully appointed in this time? How would this potentially uh, affect her legacy? Would it harm it or would it not change it? Malik, do you want to start us off? Sure. As I mentioned before. Uh, Amy Barrett is obviously a very qualified candidate from a legal perspective. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And I believe uh, she would perform her duties uh, well in that sense. Uh, some people have doubts in regards to whether she would be biased in regards to certain matters. But I believe that uh, judges that are appointed to Supreme Court will be, uh, or I hope they'll be humbled by the role and thus uh, act in a, well, impartial manner. And I have uh, ideological disagreements with her, but that does not mean that she should not be appointed. Uh, I'm uh, not only because I'm not a U.S. citizen, but because no uh, person in uh, uh, the United States should be deciding uh, whether a justice should be appointed on uh, the base of their beliefs, uh, unless, of course, they are uh, of a very extreme, uh, uh, um, well, uh, tenure, right? Mm -hmm. So in regards to that, I, I do believe she's a qualified uh, individual. And as to her legacy, uh, her being appointed uh, last minute uh, before a, an election, I do believe that uh, perhaps that will taint a bit her image. Uh, because again, as I, as, I didn't, as I didn't mention, I do not believe that uh, Trump should be uh, nominating anyone at this time because of the hypocrisy uh, of such an act. Harish, what do you think? I think individually as a lawyer and scholar, she seems just as qualified as anyone else out there. Um, but I guess um, to take an even broader look, what, what might this mean for a democratic um, government and a democratic legislature? I think it's, a, it's a, generally a threat. And therefore, I think as much as we'd like someone who's qualified just like she is to sit on the court, I think her leanings towards um, making findings that would favor one party make it such that it would be difficult to endorse appointment because I think it would lead to a shakeup of the system and lead to potentially considering introducing more justices onto the court. I just think the incentives 
for a democratic legislature, legislature and executive is so great that um, put in the position they would want to reverse the changes that a 6-3 majority would bring. Sure. Um, I guess for my personal view, I think similarly to Malik, you know, uh, based on her judicial experience as well as her legal experience, I think she's definitely, you know, qualified for the position. And I think with legacy, I think it's a bit of a difficult question as, I mean, can you really blame someone for accepting, you know, an appointment? And can you really take something away from their legacy for an accepting a Supreme Court appointment when it, you know, happens oftentimes once or twice every decade? And think about how many, you know, lawyers or judges would, um, would you know love to even be considered for an appointment so i don't think it'll take anything away for her legacy or at least i i hope that it won't so perhaps if we can sort of um begin concluding our discussion i was hoping that each of you could sort of give me one or two potential reforms to the supreme court which you'd like to take place either something that's being employed in a different system or a new idea um altogether Maybe, Harris, you'd like to start us off? Sorry, Abe, if you could repeat that. I couldn't catch the last bit. Sure. So if there's any reforms or variations to the Supreme Court found in systems outside of the U.S. or, I guess, reforms that you've thought up, which you think would be a positive change to the Supreme Court in the U.S., what's, you know, one or two of these ideas? And why would this affect the Supreme Court positively? I, I guess I've got two, um, I guess, ideas that would improve the way the Supreme Court in the US works. Firstly, it would be to remove lifetime appointments and introduce a mandatory retirement age. I think because the stakes are so high and because the possibility of someone um, passing on or being incapacitated so as not to be able to perform the Supreme Court rule is so uncertain. Um, the incentives to appoint someone to the Supreme Court that favors one's um, general interpretive method that would lead to desirable results for one party is so great that it is no wonder that Republic Republicans now are doing are trying to force their way in and get a Supreme Court nominee. And I think if the tables were turned, it would be the same thing for a Democratic um, Party. So I'd say that's the first thing that we ought to consider, which is to make mandatory retirement age, ages possible which I think still maintains the ability for one to be independent because that means that no matter what you do, you'd still have to retire at a certain age, but that doesn't affect your ability to work during that age period. And I guess with that, maybe a general norm of um, um, choosing someone who is within a certain age bracket. I think in the UK, it's quite clear that justices tend to be at their mid-60s or early 60s, if not late 50s. And therefore, they sit for an average of about 10 or so years. And I think um, that is a norm that ought to be adopted so that people aren't chasing down the youngest justice and putting them on the Supreme Court. As much as Amy Coney Barrett is extremely um, renowned um, lawyer and scholar, there certainly are alternatives that alternative lawyers that might be more experienced and therefore more suitable um, to sit on the court. The second thing I'd consider is um, instead of making it a partisan process, which means um, you have to be selected by the president and I mean nominated by the president and then um, approved by the Senate. I would suggest um, using an appointments commission system that incorporates democratic elements into it. So 
um, the UK has the Judicial Appointments Commission that decides on quite a fair number of um, um, judicial appointments in the UK, um, across the UK in the High Court all the way up to the Supreme Court, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess there are also concerns that judges become more powerful if they're able to influence um, judicial appointments because in the Judicial Appointments Commission system, judges hold a number of seats seven out of 15 seats in choosing, which can be a concern. But I think these concerns are mitigated by the fact that um, naturally judges ought to be um, acting in opposition to the legislature and government so as to uphold the constitution. And the experience of the UK has showed that judges often um, show restraint um, in interpreting so as to make sure that government has sufficient ambit to make decisions that um, can influence others' lives. So I think um, these are the two policies or at least changes I propose to the system that will make it more stable, less partisan, and make the stakes not so high in appointing a Supreme Court justice. Malik, how about you? I would like to begin by endorsing uh, the proposals uh, made by Harish. And in an ideal world, I'd say that uh, they are perfect. However, I do uh, recognize that the United States it's, is loath to, to reform, and if reform would be coming, we, it would have to be something small. So perhaps I'd suggest uh, prohibiting uh, the appointment of a justice in the last year of the uh, term of, of a president. So uh, that would uh, prevent uh, a pick such as uh, the one currently occurring happening. And I realize that would potentially open the door for the Supreme Court uh, missing a justice uh, for an entire year. However, I don't think this is uh, an insurmountable uh, barrier. So uh, you only need uh, six justices in order to decide a case. So I, I think that would be uh, more than enough. And uh, a special provision could be made in the case uh, that uh, three or four of these justices unfortunately uh, pass away uh, within uh, the last year of the term of a president. But I feel that this would be a very good solution that could be implemented almost immediately without uh, overhauling the system as a whole uh, too much. Because as I said again, I would not uh, at the moment endorse the selection of Amy Byrd because uh, I, I believe it is hypocritical for the Republican Party uh, to be following uh, that trajectory, seeing that in 2016 uh, they opposed a similar uh, measure uh, by Obama's administration. Sure. Uh, for me, I think there'd be one main reform, which, you know, is pretty much the same as both of you mentioned, but I think uh, require like mandatory retirement at age 75, I think would be fair. But with that, I think you'd have to also include a minimum age for appointees to the Supreme Court. Otherwise, this would incentivize, you know, uh, administrations to try and appoint the youngest people and perhaps not the most qualified people for the job. So perhaps mandatory retirement at 75 and minimum age would be something like uh, 45 or 40. I don't know exactly what it would be, but I, I think that um, would be a pretty fair reform, but obviously it wouldn't, you couldn't just implement it and kick anyone who's over 70 off instantly. I think you'd probably structure it in a manner which Let's say, you know, um, Chief Justice Roberts, for some reason, leaves the Supreme Court next and you had this reform implemented. You'd require the next person to be um, someone over the age of 45 
And once they become um, 75 years old, they'd be forced to retire. So it wouldn't be like everybody on the court would instantly be party to this new reform. It would be incoming people. And I think that would be probably a more fair way to implement it. Uh, so I think that's probably a good place for us to end our discussion today. Um, I think it's quite interesting, and obviously it's very topical. I'm going to be very interesting to see you know, how it plays out in the next few months and over the next few years to see the, the potential repercussions of what's currently going on. So just a few notes for our listeners before we go. As always, if you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed the episode today, please leave us a rating or review in the podcast store or tell a friend about us. To stay up to date, make sure to subscribe to the show. You can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod, follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod, or you can like our page on Facebook also at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you very much for listening, and you'll hear from us again soon.